August 26, 2012, lecture discussion number 80 on the book of Romans. Uh, I did confess last Sunday that, yes, it's true, I'm stalling. Uh, I'm stalling in, uh, before taking up uh, Romans 5.12. Um, and that, is, by the way, is where many great things lie. And I say that a lot, and people say, well, great things lie everywhere in Scripture, and that's absolutely true. So when I say many things great, uh, many great things lie at Romans 5.12 or are hidden in 5.12 of Romans, that means I've found some. That's all that means. I haven't found them where they in other places, but I have found some in Romans 5.12, so that's why I know uh, that it is an incredible place. The rest I'm just waiting to learn. But uh, with so many, all too many uh, of you guys on summer hiatus, um, I'm in full Mr. Bang Bojangos mode here, if you know who he is. I'm trying to dance my way to extend the uh, ending of Romans 5.1 through 5.11 until after the Labor Day holiday. So I am kind of taking on things that sort of fit. Uh, it's fortuitous, for example, that uh, I came across C.S. Lewis, The Grief Observed, that follows cleanly Acts 2. So that's kind of nice. But uh, I also wanted to read some stuff from the people who write me. Uh, this is Mark and Stephanie in Texas, and they say this, You guys are doing amazing things over the Internet these days. It is wonderful to get to participate in a small way. Keep up the wonderful work. God bless you and God bless the ministry. And we really thank Mark and Stephanie because they have played a very large role in our ability to do that. Um, I have a letter from Janet, uh, I believe, right? Yes, Janet Powell. She is she starting a Bible study and she writes this. I'm starting First Peter tomorrow. I shouldn't have said Janet's last name, should I? Doggone it. Sorry for all of the uh, problems that's going to cause you, Janet. Maybe Ben will get rid of it for me. He does sometimes. She writes this. I am starting First Peter tomorrow. It is disappointing that the number of women wanting in-depth Bible study is so minimal. I had to, I had to agree to do a morning and evening class, but both combined, I only have six. Um, however, I will honor the Lord and do my best to excite those six women who thirst for the word. Uh, Janet, uh, as you know, has been a long, faithful friend of Cliffside, and she is uh, learning what I know very well. If you're going to do this kind of material, uh, you better be really very excited about those six, because this isn't stuff that people really want to know. Uh, It's always been that way. C.S. Lewis, one of the things I got from him that was so interesting to me is his comments about that particular issue. Um, um, even though he is widely read and revered, no one really knows what he actually thought very well. They just read him uh, and on a surface letter a level. And so I'm hoping to change that for him. I, 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 someday, if I see him, I, I hope I do him justice. But here's one that you might like. I just want to read them all because we've been getting so many. It is amazing how many we're getting, and we appreciate all of them, by the way. We can't read them all, but uh, uh, it's just really exciting to hear and find out all these people. Here's one from somebody new, uh, Robert. And it doesn't say where Robert is, and I won't give his email address. Here's what he says to you. Hi, cliffhangers. I jumped off the cliffside, but I'm still hanging in there with you. Please provide notes for the messages. I have learned to read now. Keep the one-eyed fat man alive. That would be me, by the way. Even though he has ruined my life. I really appreciate that. I do my best to ruin as many Christmas carols as I can as well. How about a Diet Coke kegger mounted on the stage? (laughs) Or a camelback bladder pack strapped to his back? Diet Coke is not covered by Medicare. That lets you know that he he has some wisdom here. Okay. Uh, Diet Coke is not covered by Medicare, so scholarship money may be needed to cover medication, uh, (laughs) to cover medication intake. 
um, pauses to keep Steve from passing out when he has to bend over to pick up a whiteboard marking pen that is followed onto the stage platform. See, I, I was r- making a remark to so I'll interrupt uh, Robert here. I, I just do these things. I don't think about them when I'm doing it. I make noise when I bend over. I because I make noise when I bend over. I drink my medicine because my mouth gets dry. Because that happens to you when you get older. So, to me, it's just, but then to realize, yes, I'm actually doing it to a very wide audience, and, and this is an example of that. I am waiting, I'm, re, I'm going back to Robert here, I am waiting for my Cliffside t-shirt and poster catalog. So that, by the way, I get that a lot. Um, and that's really kind of cool. Have you stopped sending out Steve Cronister autograph photos and softballs to loyal internesters? We know we can't vote, but we know where to find you. And then, please cover the following rabbit trail topics when appropriate. God loves threes. Casting of lots. Why was lot cast? The British communist wealth of nations. Now, that tells you more about Robert, huh? Please define why the musicians have to come forward. Because I say that, don't I, all the time. Well, the musicians come forward. He, he wants to know why. Why do musicians have to come forward? I would rather have earthquakes than thunder. Hebrews is not a coffee shop. And thank you, all of you, the, the four-eyed old man. So, Robert, we, uh, I just really enjoyed it. And, and uh, thank you for listening and writing to us. And then this one from David in North Platte, um, Nebraska. Dear Cliffside. Just a little something to help supply some side dishes to have with Peter's fried chicken. Okay. This is working. This is. <laughs> if you remember, Peter from Australia sent us cookies and chicken. And so David from Nebraska is uh, trying to. Thanks for the insightful teaching. And, and David, we thank you. At P.S. he says, uh, or you can uh, buy more medicine to keep you all going. So, so you make fun of me for all that stuff. But. Uh, uh, apparently, it is what I am now known for. Okay. So I just wanted to read those for everybody um, before we got back to today's topics, just because those people are very important, and I want them to know we're important, and I want them to know that uh, we will take time for them as best we can. Okay, we have the fortuitous placement of C.S. Lewis's A Grief Observed. Um, and again, I said that follows cleanly Acts 2 and returns us actually to Romans 4.17. If I were going to put it there, I would have put it Right at Romans 4.17, which says this, God who gives life to the dead, boy, pay attention to that, gives life to the dead. And yes, I know I need a haircut. That's what I'm going to do. You should see the pictures that I had to take of me. This one's not working again. Do I really burn these out this fast? Or is somebody sabotaging me? That one's a little better. My markers go really quickly. God who gives life to the dead and calls those things, gives life and calls those things. What's the obvious question right after that? What is the definition or who is those things? God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Which is an incredible verse, which we should have come to expect. And, and it kind of sisters along with Romans 5 or 4.25. Jesus, I'm adding him in because that's the context. Jesus, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. And I'm going to write this word on the, on the board and not tell the Internet audience what's going on. That is very important, that word. Jesus, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. In Romans 4.17, notice that God gives life. He gives life. You didn't earn your life. He has to give it to you. He gives life over and over and over again. Paul, make sure you understand the gift that is the, that is the life that he gives. It's the gift of life. God gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did exist. Right? 
Romans 4.17 is about existence, and that's why it feathers so nicely with Mr. Lewis. God, and it's about existence as God defines existence, and his definition should be the one we care about, and expect his definition of existence to be what? Yeah, right. Yeah, that's very good. It'll be the right definition, which would be most likely if we don't share that def- okay, if we don't share his definition of existence, our, our definition stinks. So we should expect his definition, by the way, to be very complex and layered, just like his scripture. But first note that God gives, and God gives what does he give? He gives salvation, and he defines salvation as life. God gives life. But then who are the dead now in that sentence in the context? Well, they're the ones that are dead in sin, which is all of mankind, if you will. I recognize that that forces me into uh, discussions about uh, children, but for just generally, if you will, at some point, if you will, the dead are the dead in sin, which is all of mankind. So now, out of the dead in sin, the those things are called by God. So who are the those things? That's the that's the who. That's the saved. He calls the those things out. What, so you you are those things. It's good to be of those things. Out of the dead in sin that those things are called by God, declared by God, judged by God, all the same, by the way, to be sinless and therefore to be called alive. The righteous and the cleansed are the those things. And so to reword it a little bit, the dead, the unclean, are, receive life, the gift of life, and are clean. And God, therefore, uh, at Romans 4.17, uh, defines existence as clean. He defines um, non-existence as unclean. So if you are unsaved, what does he, how does he define you? Not existing. His definition of existence is different than yours. If you exist... You are clean. The saved exist. Okay, now secondly, thirdly, I lost track as I was writing it. Notice these two things. And I'm going over this really fast just to get us back to topic. There's two of those. There is the two becauses of Romans 4.25. And these becauses are very, very important. It says essentially that Christ was crucified and died because, and he was resurrected because. I get all the time, why did Christ have to die? Well, Romans 4, uh, 25 explains to you. Couldn't he have saved everybody without going through crucifixion and death? Couldn't he have saved, uh, taken and take out of the context if, or, I'm sorry, take out of consideration the blood transfusion and the flesh transfusion. Couldn't he just have fixed everything? Why did he have to sacrifice himself? What is the purpose of the crucifixion, sacrifice, and substitutionary death of Christ? Well, this explains it to you. This is the two becauses. And it says, that's what makes Mark, or I'm sorry, makes Romans 4.25 so special. These two uh, becauses that explain the reason for the crucifixion and the reason for the Resurrection. Who does the reason for the resurrection bother the most? Uh Uh-huh. Jehovah's Witnesses. They don't have a body resurrection. Well, Romans 4.25, which is why they don't knock on my door anymore, is we go right here. There's a reason he was resurrected. And he had to be resurrected. There was a reason he was crucified and died. He had to be resurrected. Had. I get in trouble for that because people say, well... You, you seem to speak in a way that disregards the omniscience of God, uh, or the omnipotence of God. I do that because we can't understand either one. And I'm doing my best to put it in language that you can utilize. But here it is in 425, the two becauses. <coughs> so, the reason for the crucifixion, the death of Jesus Christ, and also I want you to notice uh, the, the, uh, the emphasis on delivered, right? Uh, where, well, let me read it again to you. Uh, where is it? I've got to find it. Jesus, who was delivered up, 
That, that delivered up, very important. Again, you see the delivery of Christ, this element, this theme of Christ being delivered. Okay, a very important aspect. So many, 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 almost everybody have mistakenly translated that word deliver in the Bible elsewhere. Not here, they usually get it right here. But elsewhere they translate it as betrayal or betrayed. It does not say that Judas betrayed Christ. It says Judas delivered Christ. <clears throat> there is a delivery aspect of this plan of salvation of his that is critically important to understand. You'll see the delivery theme all through the Bible. Omniscient God, who is Jesus Christ in the flesh, cannot be betrayed. It's impossible. There is no way you can reconcile omniscient God and betrayal. It's impossible. He does, however, want to be delivered by someone. And in this case, he was delivered by Judas. Judas is the deliverer of Christ. But I digress into one of my pet peeves. Okay? Anyway. Crucifixion death of Christ because we are, we were dead. That's what it says. Read it again. God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which did not exist as though they did. Jesus who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised up because of our justification. The death because we are dead in our offenses and he was resurrected because of our salvation. Those are the becauses. And that begins you on this journey of why his death and why his resurrection, much to the dismay of the Jehovah's Witnesses, who certainly don't uh, recognize the resurrection, the body resurrection of Christ, and who certainly don't, by the way, witness for Jehovah. I don't know who they're witnessing for. I wouldn't want to. Okay, I would. It isn't God. Because they, they say that Jesus Christ is not God and was not body resurrected. And if he is not body resurrected, then we are what? We are still dead. And Romans 4.25 says that that's one of the becauses, okay? And we'll revisit Romans 4.25 when we finally get to Romans 5.12, which, by the way, is another therefore. Find the becauses and the therefores. Every time you go through the Bible, start looking for becauses and therefores. Pretty much the same as the if-thens in geometry, right? You'll even find if-thens in, in Scripture. Which is, by the way, why geometry is so handy to Bible scholarship. I, I used to have kids all the time tell me, I don't want to learn to do proofs in geometry. I don't want to. It's no fun. I don't enjoy it. I'm never going to use it. And I always tell them, someday you'll frame a hip roof. Someday you'll build a stairway. And someday you'll try to understand the Bible. Because the Bible is very much logic-based. He has because and therefore, if and then. The therefore of Romans 5.12, which is coming up, will lean against the becauses of Romans 5.5 and 4.25. But before we get all of that in the weeks to come, you see I'm trying to head there, right? I want to continue with C.S. Lewis in existence and time. Here we go. I'm making a statement right there, aren't I? I'm saying that existence has something to do with time, and it does. Existence and time. What is the relationship between existence and time? That's what C.S. Lewis was trying to work his way through, and he did so so marvelously. Uh, um, I want to consider that among the other various things that he so astutely worked through or or wrote about. Uh, um, Again, I was stunned by what he did during this long period of grief with respect to the death of his wife. His response to the death of his wife is just like our response. Uh, we will be exactly like him, this great thinker. Um, he just handled it the, no better. He flailed away. He cried. Uh, he shook his fists. He pounded the table, if you will. That's what makes it so marvelous, is we get to see how he handled it. He would tell you how he handled it. How would he say? I said, good. 
But in the midst of that came this amazing, um, I don't know how to even describe it, this work of his. Just a bunch of notes. And if you've not been here the past two weeks, we've been following the logic of C.S. Lewis, or what he called the thinking. As he says, feelings and feelings and feelings. He recognized that his feelings were what? Destructive. He said, feelings and feelings and feelings. Let me try thinking instead. And, and by the way, that is such good advice, especially in the church today. The church is a feelings-based system now. Almost an organization. There's very little thinking in the church anymore. It's almost gone. So therefore, what are people left with when they're in trouble? Feelings. What good are they? No offense. There, there's a role for them. We're emotional-based people. But when you're in trouble, I don't see much value. And so I, I see this feelings and feelings and feelings. Let me try thinking instead. So he went, he made sure that you knew that he's just like you. That he responded with that. Now he's starting to think. And thinking is something that Mr. Lewis did well, perhaps as well as any man who has a post-alluvian, if that makes sense to you, post-flood. And I've said a couple of times, the thesis statement, as I see it, of a grief observed, if a thesis statement could be attached to this collection of notes, it would be this one. If H is not, then she never was. That's his thesis statement. That is what he's trying to prove to you. Okay? So, uh, to rephrase it once more, and I've got to keep rephrasing Mr. Lewis. If his wife, because it's so difficult to understand, this is, you don't get his easy stuff here. This grief observed is the best he's got. He knew it had to be. And you got his best. So you're going to sit down and read this book, bring a lunch. I would suggest a dictionary. And be ready to think. And a lot of you have come to me and said, I read it, and I didn't get that from it. Well, then go back and read it again. If H is not, then she never was. So to rephrase him again, and I'll have to keep doing it. If his wife only temporarily existed and then ceased to exist, then she never existed. That's what he's saying there. That is what he's trying to prove. That is what he's proving. He's proving it to himself, and he's proving it to you. If H is not, then she never was. So existence is continual. You've heard me call it the continuity of the soul. Existence must be continual, C.S. Lewis is saying. It requires timelessness. So here you go. Existence is not affected by time. And we don't think that way. None of us do. We think time beat existence every time. Ah, that's kind of a pun. Please laugh right there. Insert laugh. <laughs> I hate it when I have to do all that myself. The, uh, the Internet audience has figured out when I'm laughing and when you're not. C.S. Lewis figured it out. If his wife only had a temporary status and then ceased to exist, then her status didn't change. She never really existed. Okay? She never had an existence. Existence is continual. It requires timelessness or it isn't existence. And I, I asked last Sunday, how did he get there? How did he logically figure this out? And can you get there? It is critically important that you get there. How come? You're going to confront it, baby. You're going to confront it. You're not getting out of it. I'm going to find it this week. So here it comes. If physical death results in cessation of consciousness, then we never really had consciousness. We never really had any life. We don't live. We're not living. We don't have any self-identity. We don't have any self-awareness. We're not us. That's what C.S. Lewis is saying. If H is not, then she never was. If she doesn't exist now, she never existed 
at all. That's what he's saying. He's profoundly true. Notice the if. He knows something. Remember, he said, H is a fact. He was able to prove to himself that his wife is a fact. And if, if the, if, if physical death results in cessation of consciousness, then everything that we have, our life, our self-identity, our self-awareness, all of that is revealed to be an illusion when we die. That's his great point. And thus, we are the most miserably deluded people, thus Christians are. We are the most miserably deluded of all people. Something that Paul said, isn't it? It's exactly what he said. Something the Holy Spirit through Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 19. If, and let me read it to you. I'll just, yeah, let me go. Let me go to 14. And if Christ is not risen, then, see the if then? If Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Vacuity, vacuousness, right? Exactly as C.S. Lewis has said. It's almost exact. If Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, hollow, and your faith is also empty and hollow. Yes, and we are found false witnesses for Christ because we've testified of God that he has raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up then, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. You're still dead. See Romans 4, 17, 4, 25. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life we only have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable, pitiable, sorry, miserable also. If in this life only. I didn't say that right. If in this life only. Let me repeat it. If there is no resurrection... If Christ is not risen, if the dead do not rise, if in this life only, there is only this life, then we, all of us, especially us, we are to be the most pitied. We are the most miserable. Pitied because why? We have deluded ourselves into thinking that we have something. What do we think we have? We think we all have existence. As God defines existence, we call it what? He calls it what? Life. We think we've got it. If Christ has not resurrected, we don't have it. There's the Jehovah's Witnesses. They knock on my door. I say, well, how do you handle it? Well, we have our own little translation of that. We are to be pitied if there is no resurrection of the dead. See, if there is no resurrection of the dead... If we cease to exist at death, then we never were and we never are. All we have and all we ever will have is purposelessness, randomness, and chaos, and illusion, and that's why I asked last week why I read it so well. Do we, do we live and then dream or do we dream we live? If we cease to exist, then we have nothing. All there is is chaos. There's no goodness, there's no hope, there's just delusion and death. If there is no resurrection, if Christ is not risen, if the dead do not rise, if in this life only. In other words, if there is just this. Death, if that's all true, if it's, if it's actually the case that there's only this life, in this life only, that's all there is, then death exposes the vacuity or the vacuousness. That was always there. You see, if death unmasks or exposes sensation, cessation, if that's what death does, is it, it makes everyone aware that all there is is cessation. If death declares our so-called life then to be bankrupt, and all we are is a cloud of atomic particles colliding with each other, waiting to be thus declared, then there was never any existence. Death does not reveal existence, if that's true. What does death reveal, then? It reveals nothingness. Let me repeat that. Death reveals nothingness. And what is existence? 
I'm actually ending the sermon right here. Not really, but I could. I could. If death does not, if death reveals nothingness, if that's true, right? That's the purpose of death, to reveal cessation. What's existence? Okay. Well, first you have to define nothingness. Is existence nothingness? No, existence is not nothingness. What is existence? It's something. Can death reveal somethingness? Or does death reveal nothingness? Existence is something. And lecture is over right here. I gave you all you need. You can go. Or you can stay. I'll keep going. If some of you are leaving, goodbye, Amanda. She's now all over the internet as leaving church. If we cease to exist, I shouldn't even say that. If we cease, if we become nothingness, then we never were something. See, I'm repeating this to you over and over and over again. So you start to see how it fits together as best we can. We were simply waiting for what? To be stripped of our hallucination. We thought we were something. But we never were something. All we were waiting for is death to strip us of our hallucination, right? Of our illusion. And then we would be announced to everybody as nothing, right? And then that's why C.S. Lewis, by the way, uh, gets really upset about that. We would be announced as nothing. And by, and so you know, we have, uh, uh, this is always since uh, Darwinian evolution. This, uh, we have always been nothing. I, I watched a show on TV a couple of times, um, uh, a medical show, where always at six minutes to go in the show, exactly six minutes, the, the professional physician figured out the mystery disease and went out and solved it. All you had to do was just pretty much just wait to 54 minutes, and there you got this look. And uh, now it was time to solve, and it was always a parasite or something. No one could find but this character that was on that show was constantly saying, we are nothing. We have nothing. There is nothing. You will cease at death. Death reveals that you are nothing. That was the whole point of the show over and over and over again. Yes. Yeah, I, I, I'm going I'm to destroy that, I hope, today with God's definition of existence. That is not consistent with Scripture. What he's saying is some people, uh, some people say that God is simply imagining us. No, he gave us existence. He, call, he says so. Well, that's why I read Romans. We got existence. What are the consequences of having existence? How do we get existence? We'll get to that in a minute. But the, the, the monists, the evolutionary philosophy, this is at their core. They have, they have said it from the beginning. They will say it now. They have said it in debates with me. I've made them say it to their children. We don't exist. We have nothing. We are just simply a collection of particles, a cloud of atoms. And when we die physically, we cease. And there is no more of us ever anywhere. We have ended at that point. That's what they believe. That is what they teach. You cannot get a degree in biology from a major university unless you believe that. That's evolution. Cessation of existence. It is not compatible with the scripture. Uh, I've said that so many times and tired of saying it. I'm tired of listening to it. But, and that, by the way, is what C.S. Lewis destroys. With this, if H is not, if H is not, then she never was. And why he continues, um, and why he retorts, if you will, who hears that we're nothing? Who knows that we're nothing? Who declares us to be nothing? Who witnesses our nothingness if, in fact, uh, death declares our nothingness? Who gets to know it? And that sends us off to discuss the something that is existence and the creation of time. Because no discussion on existence can be properly addressed without adding in time. 
and time has a relationship to something. What does it have a relationship to? Whenever I say time to you, you always respond back to me. What? It happened last week. I had somebody say something, and I said, well, you're leaving time aside from existence, and you have left time away from mercy. I can't have any discussion on time without having a discussion on mercy, and I can have no discussion of time without talking about how we get existence. That may not make sense to you yet, but it will. No discussion of existence can be properly addressed without adding in time and therefore adding in mercy, because time equals mercy, as you should know. I hope you know. Now, last week, many of you came up to me with the obvious appropriate questions, and there's nothing wrong with them. They're, they're fine questions, and they're very common. And I think that I've gotten everybody to hear all of the answers, but I haven't. And you won't either. People will continually come up to you and ask you, why does God allow free will sin slash evil to triumph slash tragedy slash sadness slash catastrophe slash death slash sickness Wickedness. Why does God allow? Let me do this for you. As I don't always do it because I don't want to give people too much to think about. Let's put the word allow in quotation marks as if it is in doubt. If you have God allowing things, you have to be really sure that you're right. And that, by the way, is very common. Why does God allow all of this sadness and wickedness and death and stuff? And though I've answered it many times, it still bears repeating, if only that it comes up continually. And C.S. Lewis allows me to destroy it from another angle, uh, because it's kind of fun to destroy it a lot. Okay, let's go back over the question. Why does God allow free will sin? Why does he allow evil to triumph? Why does he allow wicked people to triumph to prosper? Why does he allow tragedy? Why does he allow sadness? Why does he allow catastrophe and Death and sickness and all of that. Why? Why, why, why does God allow that? What's implied? What's shrouded? Well, it's not shrouded. I just threw it out there on you. What's implied in that? It's implied in that question is the apparent conclusion that allowing the consequences of free will sin is somehow an error in judgment or bad. Right? Why does God allow this to happen? What's that? Not implied anymore. That's somebody saying what? God shouldn't have allowed it to happen. It's bad that he allowed it to happen. God's stupid for allowing it to happen, right? So you start right out with, why does God allow this to happen? Doing what? Insulting God. Let me see if I just don't get to you. See if I've anticipated your question. And that can't be true. God cannot be in error. He's omniscient. It's impossible for him to be an error, to have made a mistake. Can't be true. You got God making a mistake, you're making a mistake. Okay? And it can't be true that he has done something that is evil. So you cannot conclude that God is an error or that he is evil or he is both or all in error or evil. God is pure good, omniperfection, right? So how do you deal with this? And it's right to come up now when we're talking about existence. How, how do you solve that question? What do you do? Well, you do what all mathematicians do. You put the inverse on the table, right? What is the alternative to your allowing? Why does God allow tragedy, catastrophe, sickness, wickedness, death, blah, blah, blah? What's the inverse of that? What's the inverse of allowing? I'm going to give you allowing in quotation marks here. What's the inverse? What's the opposite of that? Destroying, right? Obviously. You don't allow it. You've got to destroy it. Now, I want you to consider the options of destroying sin. Do you want him to partially destroy sin? Or do you want him totally destroying sin? And how much partially is your partially? Can we all agree on how much sin we want? How much sin is okay? It's like a car, right? I'm going to buy a car. I want four-wheel drive, front-wheel drive, or two-wheel drive, or all-wheel drive. Do you want him to totally destroy sin, or 
partially destroy sin. How much sin you want to hang on to? How much sin you got? How much sin you want him to destroy? Should be obvious who's going to go. Raise your hand if you're going to be destroyed. That's your plan. He should not allow any of this. He should destroy it now. He should have destroyed it. Then what about this? Let the Internet people know I pointed to existence. What happens to your existence? Let's add, ask a few more questions about destroying sin. Let's add the element of time. Should sin be destroyed instantly? As soon as sin came up. When did sin come up? Came up in Satan, right? First, first sin. How did it come up? As a what? As a thought. Should he? Ha- did God know the thought? Now well, he's omniscient. Ding, ding, ding. Arm goes off. Now God knows he's about to think about thinking about sin, right? Why didn't God destroy it right there? Poof! Instant destruction of Satan. Where's Satan? Gone. Poof. Instant destruction. Why didn't he do that? In other words, do we have the microwave option or the slow cooking crock, crock pot option? Which one do you want for destroying sin? Let me put it a different way. Should time have been injected into the process of destroying sin or ending sin? Because that's what you're saying. Should he have, because we have sin, don't we? How long becomes a how long blues again, doesn't it? How long before he ends it? You, you want him to end it now? Is that what you want? End it now, now. How much time do you want him to take? And what is time again? No discussion about time can be had without what word? Say it for the internet people. Mercy. No discussion. How much mercy, then, do you want him to have? None? That's the microwave, instant destroy side. I want a God that had no mercy. Is that the God you want? A no mercy God? That ain't going to go well for us if that's the case. That's why you're not in charge, by the way, when sin is ending. Because you would have no mercy, would you? How much time should be injected into the process of destroying sin or ending sin? Obviously, God thought time needed to be injected in it, didn't he? Because it has been injected in it. We are gone through it. Okay? And so, does that make God evil for allowing time, if you will? I hate to use the word allowing. It gets you in trouble. How much time should he have let go by. What is the consequences of placing time into the process of ending sin? What's the consequences? Okay. Obviously, the result, one result is more sin, right? I got lots of sin now. That's the consequences of being what? Merciful. By the way, I believe I have existence. I'm right about that. You may not believe you have existence. Those of you who listen on the Internet, there may be hundreds of you that do not think you exist, that think that when you die you will cease to exist, which means you've never existed. You'll figure that out eventually. But I think I exist. I think I will always exist. I'm very grateful for this time. I'm really happy about the injection of mercy into the system. Because who got it? I got it. I'm glad for my mercy. I'm joyful. I'm grateful. I got mercy. Yay! But again, how much time? What's the consequences? Well, more sin is one result of time. Any others? And by the way, the sermon is over right here again. This is the key. Once you begin to figure this out, you never struggle again with existence or why did God do something? Why does he do things? You start figuring out really fast why he does things. He does them for the same reasons over and over again, right? 
So that's a very important key right here. Start figuring out what happens, the consequences of, of uh, uh, placing time into the process of ending sin. Now, let's ask this. Is waiting, and that's a bad word, God is what? What's he call himself? First Peter 3.20. calls himself long-suffering. I'm long-suffering. Psalm 86.15. Let me, I wrote that down for you. God is full of compassion. What does full mean in that phrase? This is full. You cannot get any more compassion in him. It's, the, it's like having a cup. And the cup is so full that the, the cup is, is, you just cannot even add another molecule of compassion. He is full of compassion. And you have to remember that. You have to go. God is full of compassion. C.S. Lewis, in his darkest time, had to fight his way through it. So I look at that and go, well, if he's fighting his way through it, I ain't going to do so good. But God is full of compassion, full of grace, full of long-suffering, and abundant in mercy and truth. Oh, wow. Somehow, truth, mercy, now are linked together. But let's read it again. Abundant in, uh, full of compassion, grace, long-suffering, mercy, and truth. Now, I want you to see that connection to truth, to compassion, to mercy, long-suffering, and grace. How does that fit? What is, the, what is he trying to say there? Anyway, God waits to end sin. That we, I think, can we agree on. Is that wrong for him to do that? Do you want him to stop doing it? Is it bad to wait to end sin? Every editorial writer of the New York Times will tell you it's bad that God lets bad things happen. God's bad. Is God evil for waiting? And such thinking, to quote C.S. Lewis, is to fill the mind with filth. Time is injected, if you will, into the ending of sin for the purposes of revealing the compassion and the mercy and the grace and the truth of God. That's what's there. That's what he says. Now, what truth? More appropriately, actually, what truths? There are many truths that make up the one truth, if that makes any sense. See how the Torah is composed. There's one law composed, of, but the Torah is never plural. It isn't, it is always one truth. You figure out how that one truth is formed, but there's just one. Hopefully you have recognized that God has placed the truth that He is good. That's the truth. Always merciful, always good into the process of ending sin. That's the truth that is there. That is why it's linked to mercy. Because He's always good, He's always merciful, and He's Using that mercy and that goodness as he can, he will in the process of ending sin. Remember, he must end sin. His justice requires, and that's a bad way of saying it. I know it. It makes it sound funny, but I'm still going to say it anyway. His justice, think of it this way, requires that he end sin. He can't do anything but end sin. People say, well, yeah, he can. He can do anything he's got. He, he will end sin. And it's good that sin is ended. And he will provide mercy while he is ending the sin. And it is good that he saves. Because if you want him to stop sin, then there's what? An end to salvation. So you are clamoring for no one to be saved. And guess what? None of us would be saved. But he injected time. So, let's continue to think, 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 instead of feel, feel, feel. His justice requires the ending of sin. It is good that sin is ended, and he will provide mercy. And it is good that he provides mercy, because providing mercy to him is to provide salvation. Providing salvation to him is to call those things into existence. Because he says existence is salvation. Right? That's his definition of salvation 
or existence, I'm sorry. And now, is God, let's keep going, is God causing the wicked to prosper? That, by the way, is the great question of Jeremiah 12.1. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Do the wicked prosper because God is calling or causing the wicked to prosper? And by the way, do the wicked prosper? Now look around. Everyone pretty good. Does God cause it? Is God causing the wicked to prosper? Or is it because the wickedness is an asset in a wicked environment? So if you're wicked and you're in a wicked environment, that's like being a left-handed hitter in a right-handed game. You're doing good. The curveball breaks away from you, you'll be fine. It helps to be wicked if you're surrounded by wickedness. And by the way, you have to define prosper. Is it temporal or eternal? God is going about in a wicked world giving life to the dead. That is what God is doing. That is what God does. God is giving life to the dead, calling those that don't exist, the dead in sin, to existence, which is eternal life, salvation. That is his plan. He is calling those things which are unclean, he is declaring them to be clean. That's what God is doing. Is he, ca- he, doesn't, he doesn't cause sin, by the way. Sorry about that with the extreme and hyper-Calvinists that got him causing sin. He doesn't. What he's doing is saving people. And I don't want to imply that he's limited. He's not. But saving people is his focus. And that's what he's doing. If you got him causing evil, then you're taking away from him his attribute of saving people. You're saying, oh, he didn't have time to save people. He caused that. He, he took a day off from saving people to kill all of those people with a hurricane. How many pastors got up after a hurricane, and said, God caused that hurricane because what? You've been bad. You didn't give money to me. If God was sending hurricanes killing bad people, there would be nobody left. Now you're back to instant destruction of sin, right? It's just unbelievably ridiculous to listen to it, but it's very common, and I understand why they want to scare people. They think God needs help saving them. And so they're going to inject themselves into his saving process. They like that, because it's profitable, as we've heard me say. But God is focusing on giving life to the dead. That's what he does. It's what he's doing. He is being himself. That's Psalm 86.15, compassion, merciful. Now, I know he's the judge of the wicked. I know. So why does the wicked prosper temporarily? Because God is giving life to the dead. It's who he is. It is what he does. So, asked, is it correct to even frame that question this way? Why does God allow sin? That's not correct. The correct question is Jeremiah 12.1. Why do the wicked prosper? Why do the wicked prosper? Because God has put time in the system and he's saving people. While he is taking time to save people, what are the wicked doing? They're prospering. Why are they prospering? Because God is saving people. Which means he's not doing something to who? The wicked people. Is he going to keep that up? Do you want him to stop saving people? Or do you want him to stop the wicked people? Where do you want him to go? Now back to existence and time really fast. Existence, this is one of my t-shirts. Existence existed before time existed. Does that make sense? Existence existed before time existed. And that answers the question of how C.S. Lewis concluded that if H is not, then she never was. Therefore, H is a fact. And our preferences have not been considered. It doesn't matter. Bill was trying to explain me earlier today. He's absolutely right, as he always is. 
God knows what we want, but we can't change his plan. Our job is to figure out what he wants, how he thinks. It isn't to try to make him an organ grinder monkey. You do what I want now, God, or I will be mad at you. That's, that is disrespectful. Our preferences have not been considered. We can't change the fact that we have existence. You can, you can say, I don't want existence. I don't want anybody else to have existence. Uh, I want to be in charge of my own existence. You can do whatever. Your preferences haven't, you have existence. You're a fact. You can't stop being a fact, nor can anybody else. Your thinking that someone isn't a fact doesn't stop them from being a fact. They're still a fact. What you want to think is not being considered by God. C.S. Lewis figured that out. And much to the dismay of the evolutionary philosophers, the monists, there is no such thing as nothing. Nothing is something. It's pre-existing something. Remember the void zero stuff. Once again, one must understand nothing. You have to understand nothing. Because if you say somebody has become nothing, you have to know that nothing is what? Nothing is something. How much something is nothing? What nothing do you mean? You have to know the difference between the nothing. Which nothing are you talking about? No between nothing and nothing. Again, that's digressing. Let me start again. Try again. Existence existed before nothing existed. Does that make sense? Existed, existence existed before nothing existed. Existence is before. What is existence? It's a characteristic. It's a characteristic of God. Existence is a fact. Existence is transferred, if you will. Or existence is given. Okay? And to Robert, uh, the musicians are coming forward now, Robert. They have the power to end the lecture, and they know it. I've been defeated by them every single Sunday. So that's why I asked them, Robert, to come forward to pretend I have control. But if I don't ask them, Robert, they come forward anyway, proving I have no control. Okay. Existence is given. Existence cannot be destroyed. Existence cannot end. Death cannot affect existence. How come? Because existence has to be before time. Does that make sense? I have to have existence before I can have time. Why? That is why he got this figured out. If H is not, then she never was. And H is a fact. Existence cannot be destroyed by death or existence cannot be destroyed by time. It is ultimately the same thing. Does that make sense to you? Death is what? Inside of what? Time. Death is subject to time. Existence is not. Existence is before time. Existence is who? If you deny that existence exists, you're denying, by the way, God. Because one of his characteristics is existence. That would make sense to me. People who deny existence like to deny God. They think by denying existence of themselves, they are denying God's existence. But your existence is a fact. Your preferences have not been considered. Existence is not created. Does that make sense? God did not create existence. God gave it. Because God what? Has it. Where did God get his existence? There. See, there's your question. Where did he get his existence? You know where you got your existence, right? From God. Where did he get his existence? Now, now you can start fighting with that. Hopefully you'll solve that really fast. That's what we call the fallacy of infinite regression, right? Or ultimately turtles all the way down. So, understand that fallacy. Existence 
is a is an I am, if you will. It's a presence, a present, in the sense that it's in the present. I am the present tense. It's a presence. And if you deny the existence of existence, that is equal to the denial of God, who is the source of existence, and He is the 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 I am, right? So there must be a source of existence, or to put into question form, from where, or from what, or from whom. Or why does existence come from God? Why did he give existence? It is what he does. And if we exist, by the way, we must exist because time cannot affect, time cannot impact existence. And hopefully that helps you get started working it out for yourself. C.S. Lewis figured it out. So can you. To give you some help, Solomon figured it out. He wrote it down too. You can get get hit. So off to work you go. They're shutting me down. And that's the end of me for today. Okay. See you next week. No. Won't see you next week. Won't see you next week. Don't come here next week. Whatever you do. Okay. See you. Let's rise and be dismissed as the musicians come forward.